Welcome everyone to the 15th episode of POV Crypto. I'm David Hoffman here with my buddy Christian. Christian, how are you doing? Doing great, man. We got tons of amazing content. The last episode, MakerDAO versus Bitcoin, was a smashing success. Thanks to everyone for, for supporting us. This week, we got Brian Snyder. We did an interview. He does a lot of stuff with mining, been doing it for years. David, you want to tell people about Brian? Yeah, so Brian and I work together. I uh, produce content for his uh, for the division of our company for Bunker Mining. Uh, I work in, at Bunker Capital, and he works at Bunker Mining. And uh, we kind of are, are tag-teaming this project together that... Uh, really allows for vertical integration for future mining facilities. Uh, so the, the pitch is that the mania of 2016 to 2017 growth in Bitcoin prices caused very rapid, not very well-planned Bitcoin mining facilities to be erected without too much thought for the distant future. Uh, and now that that phase is over, there's going to be an, an entrance of next generation mining facilities that integrate power supply uh, facilities, power generation facilities with Bitcoin mining facilities. And Brian is the head of that project. So he's been in the mining space for a long time. So it's it's pretty uh, an awesome opportunity to be able to pick his brain and, and see how the space has matured from the perspective of a legacy Bitcoin miner. Mining is chronically un- misunderstood by pretty much everyone who is not just in it. It's so complex. It requires understanding of electrical engineering, networking, hardware manufacturing, uh, how the energy grid works. It's just so complex. And Brian has pretty much been doing it since the beginning of professional mining, which is pretty incredible. He had a ton of amazing knowledge. And given the current state of mining with a couple of negative difficulty or difficulty decreases on the Bitcoin network, uh, he gives some really amazing insight. So I think you guys are really going to enjoy the show. But before we get into the interview, I want to remind you guys, please rate the show. Please check us out on Twitter at POV pod. Check me out on Twitter at CK underscore snarks. You can find David at Trustless State. And yeah, without further ado, let's just get right into the episode. Brian, welcome to POV Crypto. Happy to have you. Why don't you tell the little bit uh, the audience about who you are and uh, what you do for Bunker Mining? Hey guys, um, so I'm Brian Snyder. I'm the CEO of Bunker Mining, um, new uh, division of Bunker Capital. Been in the mining industry now for about uh, five years now, uh, back in the days of uh, GPU mining and throughout, um, kind of seeing the industrial revolution of the mining industry early on and, you know, got got involved and uh, ended up uh, forming a business around it. So what year did you start? I'm going to say probably around right around 2013. So it was during the transition time where uh, FPGAs and things were starting to become more prevalent on the Bitcoin network. And uh GPUs were just starting to get started um, into Litecoin. So I actually started out initially as a Litecoin miner with uh, large-scale GPU deployments and then kind of transitioned into uh, both of both of those spaces. Awesome. So tell us how you uh, scaled up that operation. Um, did you just uh, kind of dabble and, and then how did you then go all in or did you uh, work with a company? How that happened? Yeah. So um, my experience was always in IT. Um, so I worked previously as a consultant. Um, I began with a couple different tech groups. Um, basically, we started out hosting our own small amount of miners, realized the scales of economy. 
um, back in the day when you know this was being done in data centers or you know purpose-built facilities traditionally for servers and whatnot. So we basically would acquire hosting contracts and then manage not only our own gear but investors' gear or other people interested in hosting. Um, eventually, we reached the point where you know it kind of became inevitable that small contracts and whatnot wouldn't really be the future of it and we partnered up with a uh, very large um, Brazilian mining group effort and was eventually managing about probably about 50 megawatts uh, worldwide worth of mining um, in t basically 2015 carrying into about 2016 2017 before we spanned off and started building our own uh, facilities and operations at that time well, you said 50 megawatts what percentage of the network was that just for context uh we were probably pulling around five to eight percent of the network i think about eight wow. percent at peak wow. um but yeah we had about five percent of the global hash network uh for for a while um and again this was you know several years ago more at our peak we actually had purchased most of the remaining uh spondulis sp30 31 35s and we're running them in a, a couple different data center facilities uh before we started getting involved heavily with uh, bitmain um gear off the top of your head do you recall the us dollar revenue that bitcoin was producing for miners uh, per day um, off the top of my head, no. I believe it, most of it, though, was around a couple hundred dollars a machine um, compared to now, where you're looking at about seventy-three dollars for an S9. Um, you know, obviously talking gross here, so you know, significantly more in general. Uh, but again, similar to today, there were you know peaks in the market, and explosions, and difficulty. Um, and actually, really, when we were doing it, we were constantly swapping equipment every six months uh, just due to the very rapid advancement through um, the different generations of, of chips and nanometer sizes. So as the chip technology evolved, we were constantly changing equipment. So we had a very, very high turnover rates um, up until basically we hit 20 and 16 nanometer and the chips really started to begin to be optimized and uh consolidated interesting so uh it sounds like the the life cycle of these chips were a lot shorter in the beginning and now they're starting to elongate and that's something that a lot of kind of like bitcoin economists have been talking about is that the chips eventually will start having a lot longer shelf life can you kind of comment on that um you can see that currently right because when we spooled up we purchased our s9s uh we had actually received the s9s uh, prior to the halving um the most recent halving back in uh i want to say what 20 2016 baby 2016 right so basically summer uh, 2016 and we had our s9s deployed prior to that um and we are still running the very same s9s that we got on that original batch uh, probably about 70 to 80 percent of the original s9 so you have to imagine the roi numbers on those s9s are, are very astronomical hell yeah pre pre uh, having yeah yeah pre having i'm pretty sure we roi'd on them by the time the having actually hit um we were generating an enormous amount of capital uh at the time um and again, I, I was actually in for, more in a position at the time where I was a CTO for another group. So I wasn't quite reaping the benefits as an investor um, at that time. 
just kind of one of the reasons and decisions we decided to split off from the group and, and start building our own uh, facilities so we could, you know, realize the future on what was coming. Um, see that you definitely squeeze the mining profitability squeezing um, as it advanced. So uh, really quickly, I want to bring it back to a current event. I think it was like four or five days ago, the mining hash rate for Bitcoin dropped about 15%. Obviously, you know, the price bubble um, is popping and not everyone that jumped into Bitcoin mining in 2017 was ready to handle a full-blown winter. Can you kind of talk about what does it take to survive year on year having the having as a Bitcoin miner and just really have longevity and profitability? And, you know, what do these ops that are shutting down, like, what does it look like internally for them? Well, I think one of the largest difficulty factors um, or things that's causing the difficulty to fall so drastically right now is actually the Chinese market, right? Because in January, the Chinese government basically passed a... Uh, national ban to say no more Bitcoin mining in China. Uh, but what was given when you actually talk to some of these facility operators over there, they were basically given a one year grace period to pick up and move their operations. Um, and so what you're really seeing is just kind of an early onset to probably what we would have seen in January as China is one of the largest nations, probably contributing over 50% of most crypto mining activities um, as of today. And what we're seeing is we're seeing China just saying, well, you know, with profit margins and things that we have now and the cost of operation in China, it's not worth continuing to January. There's no reason to run for a loss for another month and a half. We might as well shut down early. Um, so I think what you're mostly seeing right now is a lot of the Chinese operations going under. Um, and that's what's pulling off the difficulty. So as your experiences with uh, Bitcoin mining has developed and, and you've gotten a little bit more firsthand experience, uh, let's talk about um, bunker mining and what they're doing to address some of these issues of the complexities and difficulties of mining in a bear market and talking about future proofing Bitcoin. Yeah, no, ab absolutely. So, you know, the basic thing has always been, well, we want the cheapest price possible. Um, there's certain countries, Venezuela, Georgia and others that offer some extremely cheap electrical pricing. Um, but in the case of Venezuela, for example, you're in a highly contested zone. There's not a lot of investor faith in Venezuela. And so, you know, projects and stuff that aren't through government or somebody that's got the backing of the government of Venezuela, you know, it's a very unsafe venture to get into. Lots of people have lost their miners or stories all over the place um, within the community and what's going on there with the government seizing equipment. So. You know, cheapest power is important, but it's not the only factor. Um, with bunker mining, one of the conclusions I came up with, as we had stated before, the drop in the nanometer uh, technology. So we're looking at 16 nanometer moving in now into the 10 and the 7 nanometer uh, generations. Um, but what we've seen is, is a double impact, right? The Bitcoin mining gear is reaching essentially current generation tech. So, you know, what the processors and GPUs are being built with today, number one. Number two, the chips have become very optimized. Um, there are some small room for improvements, but we're not going to see any drastic improvements to chip technology. And number three, uh, the actual nanometer technology and use of silicone is actually hitting a uh, materials limitation on how much, how many transistors you can fit onto silicone without overheating essentially making it so the silicone is no longer a viable source for the chip. 
Um, and so material science runs short. And what that means at the end of the day is you're looking at essentially um, an ice age, if you will, on, you know, Moore's law has been dead for a while, but you're looking at the fact that we might be waiting four to five years for two nanometer, three nanometer tech, which means that the machines being built today on the seven nanometer mode that know that have been optimized, you know, very well could have a light, uh, shelf life of five years. So in terms of facility design, one of the big things that I've advocated and I advocate at Bunker um, in our design and engineering teams is conditioning the climate. Um, we want to make sure that not only, you know, we're making sure that there's a decent climate for these machines, that, you know, we've got air filtration, regular maintenance, and we're not just putting these things up for six months and then we don't really care if they die, right? I mean, I'm still running S9s from two and a half years ago and they're still generating revenue and they're still generating profit. Um, so facility design is, I think, something that a lot of Bitcoin miners overlook. Um, they build really just, you know, basically giant dust blowing, you know, <laughs> sheds, if you will. And they throw the miners in there and then they're surprised when 30, 40, 50 percent of their miners are dead within the first, you know, six months to a year. Um, so, again, those sorts of principles and, and processes that we can handle in large industrial operations are imperative uh, to the future of Bitcoin mining stably and profitably. So you mentioned some political issues with uh, Venezuela and other countries like China, where uh, where the state uh, authoritative control isn't so friendly to Bitcoin miners. Uh, but we've seen that in the states as well. Uh, for example, Washington State, Eastern Washington, it's a, a very, very hot spot for Bitcoin miners due to the low, low electricity prices. Um, but to my understanding, the uh, local politics of the region hasn't been friendly to Bitcoin miners there either. Can you go into that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. So if you want to look at the geopolitical climate, even in the United States, a lot of the low cost, low power locations in the U.S. are very specific geographically and they have limited amounts of power resources there. And so one of the things that you run into is these small little geological, you know, geo pockets. They want to encourage, you know, traditional businesses like manufacturing or whatnot to come in. They want their electricity to be used for those purposes. So what's happened as miners have basically flooded these low cost pockets, um, there's been a lot of backlash uh, by not only local people, but also by the municipalities. Um, who, you know, the rates are really, really low when they go in there. And then as they start to consume all the energy, surplus energy that they have on the grid available there, you know, they start to raise the prices on the miners, you know, putting a lot of pressure, um, especially in a bear market like there is today. So, you know, that's one of the big issues that we're dealing with um, when you're talking about that. And that's Kind of where I think a lot of the creativity um, and, and vision that, you know, I'm trying to instill in our group is actually building our own generating resources. So basically building our own power resources for Bitcoin mining. Hey, so real quick here, Brian, I know that you guys are doing some amazing stuff and I'm going to tease that, like, like you said, you guys are building your own power generating facilities and uh, I, I think that that's going to really be a strong influence moving forward. But I kind of want to take a step back and kind of learn about some of the macro factors that you think are going to be really important in the next, you know, five years. You mentioned one of them, which is that the chips might last for five years and have a five year uh, life, uh, shelf life. 
Can you talk about some of the other macro factors that you think are going to be important while you are planning out these really, you know, long-term sunk costs of producing these facilities and going long on BTC? Yeah, absolutely. Um, longevity, uh, regular maintenance, um, efficiency using technologies, um, security is a huge thing that we see uh, very evidently in a lot of these facilities. Um, you get a lot of people that don't necessarily have technical backgrounds or network operations, and they end up getting hacked. Um, in fact, in Eastern Washington, there were people that were actually hijacking the ISP and rerouting the packets to their own pool. So they were actually stealing Bitcoin mining operations, not by infiltrating the local network, but by actually hijacking the uh, essentially their 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 routes, um, and so they were redirecting their packet traffic. You pointed at Ant Pool, and it ends up going to some other you know proxy, and then gets rerouted to their their account. Um, so there's been you know some very sophisticated attacks against mining facilities. So I think security is absolutely imperative, and you know that that's obviously macro security, external threats. But the other thing you have to look at is internal threats as well. Um, I mean, just converting, you know, moving three or four miners over to your own personal pool when you're an operator working in a Bitcoin mine, um, you know, there, there's an incentive to that uh, for theft and you can, you know, do it relatively anonymously. So it's important to have security protocols and things in place for your workers um, as well as, you know, macro security aspects from external threats um, at your mining facilities, which is something we don't see a whole lot of today. What what kind of power do you think is, you know, I guess there's a lot of FUD being thrown at Bitcoin mining regarding, you know, a lot of powers coming from coal and it's bad for the environment. Can you kind of speak to, is there a general trend in, you know, where this power is coming from? Is it hydroelectric? Is it others? Does it really depend um, would love to kind of get your perspective there. You know, a lot of these blocks where there's extremely cheap power, and this is in the U.S., are traditionally around hydroelectric generating stations, uh, specifically those that were enacted by um, Hoover and were built by the Fed uh, during the New Deal um, period. And so a lot of these hydroelectric facilities are actually owned by the federal government. And one of the regulations is they basically have to sell the power if you're a PUD at essentially the cost of power as an economic incentive to the local governments and local counties that these uh, dams are a part of. Um, so that's where you're looking at those. Now, if you look at the world globally and in China and whatnot, and even Venezuela, um, in China, the primary power source is actually from coal. And this is where we get a lot of the issues with the environmental concerns, with the coal facilities, um, bringing a lot of bad press and a lot of carbon output um, in, in, those, in those locations. So, yeah, I mean, China is pretty much run on coal. And then if you look at Venezuela, um, their grid is heavily subsidized by their oil well operations. And most of the generations of power there, it's... Uh, combination of hydroelectric and then my guess would be probably natural gas from a lot of the uh, just surplus gas from their oil well um, operations in Venezuela. All right, Brian, bringing it back to bunker mining, tell us what happened in eastern Washington with you and, and your team there. So in eastern Washington, uh, we deployed a couple different facilities and we were getting ready to ramp up a larger facility and basically, um, the utility companies there placed moratoriums on uh, Bitcoin miners. And again, this is 
relating back to what we talked about earlier with the you know political politics involved and the people's conception of Bitcoin mining essentially stealing all of their energy um, available um, in their area. So, you know, while I understand and respect that, you know, we've got a company and we're trying to bring Bitcoin mining into the United States um, and out of China to, to really make it more distributed and more free. And so we basically, I started off on a path of looking at energy production. And so what we've kind of basically the bunker mining's principle and our core philosophy is building our own generation stations that can supply power to the grid that are green energy producing facilities and can also Bitcoin mine. And we can get into the specifics of that, but one of the biggest factors is we want to own the assets. So we want to actually own the power generating facilities so we can generate power for ourselves. There's really no political ramifications or the ability for the grid or you know local constituents to shut down the mining operation because we're generating our own power. Um, one of the economic benefits, however, of being connected to the grid, if a lot of people don't know, you know, when you're at your house, you just kind of have a rate. You have a peak rate and you've got a normal rate. And some bills are more complex, but you know, essentially you have two different rates, maybe a summer and a winter rate. And with in within the industry itself, within the actual grid and then the economics involved, the rates change on a hourly basis. And so what I found fascinating is, is we you know, started diving into the energy research is that power plants produce power at a loss for a vast majority of the time that they're operating. They still have their staff, you still have your overhead and everything else. And they're actually producing power into the grid that they're being paid very little on. A power plant may, might only be selling power to the grid for three cents, four cents, right? And so this provides a really great essentially baseline load, right? And so what I mean by baseline load is at this level is when you want to be running your Bitcoin mining gear. You know, S9 right now basically makes about six and a half, seven cents per kilowatt hour. Um, and the S15 from Bitmain makes about, you know, 12, 13 cents, about 40% more um, or even 10 cents right now. But the, the concept is that, you know, you Bitcoin mine all the time. And that basically pays for your facilitating your operations at your plant and everything else. However, there, there's periods of time when the grid can get extremely expensive during winter storms, cold seasons, over summer when everybody's running their AC. That price shoots through the roof. So those generation stations might be getting paid a dollar per kilowatt hour or 70 cents per kilowatt hour, something that's 10 times that of the Bitcoin mining. And those peaks are basically when you look at a power plant's um, payment schedule is when they're actually profitable. That's, that's really the only time. And during that period of the, when they can sell to the grid at those prices, that's when they make all their profitability and, and come with their shortfalls. So when you change the model on its head where you have kind of a baseline fixed price of six and a half, seven, eight cents per kilowatt hour for mining, um, it presents a huge opportunity for investment. It sounds to me like what you're saying is Bitcoin mining is going to make these power plants that are essentially losing money 90% of the time a lot more efficient and potentially a lot more green. Uh, can you kind of talk about that a little bit more? Yeah, absolutely. So um, specifically in, in, in the green is one of the big things we wanted to strive for. Um, and right now there's a bunch of power facilities that are shut offline. Um, 
So there, there's a bunch of mothball plants out there. Typically, they're coal power plants, right? But these facilities can be converted into green renewable energy resource centers. They have these large boilers um, that can be retrofitted. And so the project we're currently working on, we're basically going into an existing an old coal plant operation and we're revitalizing it and utilizing uh, burning waste resources. And what I mean by waste resources is C&D, construction and demolition materials. So wood from houses or demo project uh, materials that you know would otherwise sit in a, uh, sit in a landfill and degrade and still release the same amount of carbon impact we're going to take into a plant burn very cleanly with scrubbers you know and basically we'll still still release carbon dioxide but in terms of environmental impact it's significantly less by burning a lot of these waste components in the plant um, in the future some of the sites we've identified and looked at um, other waste burning facilities um, for example, tires are a huge burden um, on basically landfills and existing plants. So one of the best ways to take care of tires and rubber is to incinerate it. And during the incineration process, we can generate energy to power the Bitcoin mines or power the U.S. power grid. Um, and from a capital perspective, one of the reasons there's not more of these waste burning facilities is that you know a lot of times in order to be profitable these waste facilities have to be subsidized by taxpayers or by tax revenue in this situation we've got private capital coming in that's going to be revitalizing these facilities without uh, without a burden to the taxpayers and then produce excess energy which will ultimately lower home user costs in the environment or in the area um, the local grid if you will as the uh, power prices peak. So let's let's just recap uh, the three things that we've talked about recently, because I, I really want to drive drive what you have said home. Um, so you have this Bitcoin mine, which is generally profitable, more profitable at times where Bitcoin is high, less profitable when it's low, but it's really profitable dependent on the price of elect of electricity. And so it's it's much more of a part of the equation as when electricity prices are low. Bitcoin mine profits tend to be high. And then you have the what's the opposite is true for a power generation station, like a power plant, where it makes a ton of money in these very short amount of times where uh, electricity prices are very high, but it's generally producing power at a loss for the rest of the time. And then when you combine these two things, which are diametrically opposed in their incentives, Bitcoin miners want cheap electricity and power plants want expensive electricity. When you put these things together in the same spot, the the symbiosis between the two allow for like a maximally efficient uh, unit. So, is it, it would it be true to say that the profits of a Bitcoin mine and the profits of a power plant facility separately, if you add those those two separate entities together, it's not going to equal the same amount of profits that a hybrid Bitcoin mine power generation facility would have created. Is that is that right? Oh, correct. Uh, yeah, absolutely. The um, the numbers are, are insane when you start to look at it because you're able to pick and choose um, when you want to sell energy into the grid and when you want to suspend your mining operations. It literally allows you to just maximize your return. Um, because difficulty varies and the price of Bitcoin varies and you, you know, you have to sell Bitcoin at certain points to, to continue to run your operation. Um, the way that the 
controlling that element worked um, through a bunch of different statistical analyses and whatnot with finances, um, you know, you, you can really optimize your output. The, the ROIs become significantly more. Um, it, in fact, if you actually look at it, uh, most of these plants that we're looking at acquisitioning, these mothball plants, are, were previously used for steel uh, manufacturing. So you've got these plants where they would put the plant out right next to the coal mine, and then they would build essentially the, the giant steel uh, mill right next to that, and then the steel mine was down the road, you know, a few hundred meters or, you know, 20 miles away. And basically what we're talking about there is we're talking about the transportation cost. And so there's a transportation cost when it comes to electricity, and that's one of the biggest uh, factors when you look at your bill. Um, a lot of times that comes under, you know, a transportation cost might be, you know, for, it's basically for the power line infrastructure. It might be two cents per kilowatt hour. And then the cost of generating your power, you know, you're paying two cents for the cost of the generating your power and then another 50 cents in fees and taxes. So you have a total bill of 4.5 cents per kilowatt hour. And this is very common if you look in locations like Texas, um, for example, which has some of the cheaper power in the U.S. that's available in mass and on scale. And, you know, four and a half cents um, is viable for a mining operation. But during markets like this, during the bear market, you know, you're barely skating by the skin of your uh, skin of your pants. The price were to continue to fall. You know, a lot of these operations would be forced to shut down or would you know have to take up debt to continue to operate. Whereas if we're at a price of power, we're even just eliminating the transmission cost alone. You're looking at 2.5 cent uh, power from the generation station directly. So just removing the transmission cost. And when you start to look at CND and green energy resources, you can start bringing that cost down even lower. So, you know, a lot of times when we're talking about price, we're talking anywhere from half a cent to two cents is sort of our target range. Um, for for power, um, anything more, I think, long term is not going to be viable necessarily in the Bitcoin mining space because operations like ours that have this extremely low cost of power at around a penny or less um, are you know the ones that can survive the bear markets and not even really be phased um, by a Bitcoin price down at a thousand dollars. You know, we can still continue to operate. Uh, Profitably. Brian, when you say you get half a cent per kilowatt hour, it just blows my mind. Right now, David and I are doing a little bit of ether mining with some GPUs, and I think we're happy to get 12 cents per kilowatt hour in Seattle. I'm in San Francisco, so I'm getting like 25 cents if I wanted to move those things down here. But man, half a cent, that is absolutely incredible. Oh, it, well, I mean, think about it this way. It's absolutely incredible for us, too. Um, our facilities right now are just barely sub three cents. So we're on about 2.8 cents and 2.6 cents on our uh, two facilities um, as of today. And so when you look at even, say, one and a half cents, right, that's half the cost of operation. So you're taking a power bill that's $17,000 a month. And you're dropping that down per megawatt, and you're dropping that down to roughly about $8,000 a month. So, um, I mean, it's a huge proponent of the cost and, and everything else. And, you know, it, it's actually interesting. Um, we recently, because of the political issues up in Washington, just signed a contract. And we'll maybe do another show on it, uh, maybe even bring him on board. It, really interesting guy. 
Um, but Paul is working on a technology that allows him to do an x86 distributed computing system. And he doesn't require it to be connected to, you know, redundant power. So like what you see at a data center with generators and everything else. And so we're going to be moving him into uh, essentially our Bitcoin mining facility um, and converting it over into a more traditional x86 uh, cloud platform. Wait, hey, Brian, I don't mean to interrupt you, but... I have no idea what you're talking about. What is an x86? What? Who is Paul? Give us the background here. Sure. So um, one of the things we've been worried about with the PUD is in, uh, in Eastern Washington is that they're claiming that Bitcoin mines can only be used for Bitcoin mining or cryptocurrency mining. And one of my arguments has been that the technology and the standard, um, the standard data center space, the standard what we call the cloud, the Microsofts, the Googles, the Amazons of the world, that that technology is actually shifting. It's shifting to a point where they're no longer going to require these billion plus dollar facilities with all sorts of redundancies to be 100% online, that it's more secure to have a series of distributed computing clusters where if it's not up, it's not up. It's fine. The data just gets processed somewhere else. Um, so, you know, I've been working on a relationship with somebody who's been building this for uh, this platform for medical research, specifically cancer genome research. And one of the biggest problems is the cost of operation in a traditional data center compared to what they make off of these research projects is very high. Um, and so, you know, we're basically offering him hosting at half the cost, if not a third the cost, of what these normal data centers would charge him. And he's able to run that cloud to perform cancer research at a fraction of the price. So there's going to be, I guess my main point is, these facilities that are being used for Bitcoin mine now have other potential utilizations um, that are going to become more relevant in the next you know, four or five years as technology evolves. Um, with the cloud, you know, you, you, you need your storage and you need your core systems at a traditional data center. However, your processing nodes where you're just doing analytics or you're doing AI or you're doing, you know, learn, basically learning type algorithms, which can be distributedly computed, could be done at Bitcoin mines on basically just large processing nodes. And so this is um, the first time that I, at least I've heard about it where we're looking at putting a practical application into a Bitcoin mine type facility um, to do essentially medical research for, for cancer. Um, so we're actually really excited about that project. And, you know, it's something that I think we'd probably, you know, even consider allocating space in the future as, you know, we build these Bitcoin mines and everything else. This is another great use application that can go into these projects that stretches beyond crypto mining. Um, back more into the traditional uh, cloud space. This is just incredibly exciting. Uh, and I kind of want to illustrate something that I'm seeing in my head about this whole thing. Um, so ever since Bitcoin had a value on the market, uh, Bitcoin, the, uh, the economic incentives to mine Bitcoin locked in and this race started to produce the most efficient chip, which led to the ASIC. And then it's led to the most efficient mining facility, which is where we've seen Bitmain and Gigawatt and other mining facilities operate, uh, operate their Bitcoin mines uh, in a single as a single uh, economic uh, activity, just like, that's the only thing they do. And what I'm seeing, what I'm hearing from you is, is that uh, Bitcoin mining is turning into a collection of uh, symbiotic verticals. 
And so you have the Bitcoin mine that's powered by the power generation resource that's also powering a data center. Uh, and it, it, I, I, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe Bunker is doing this exclusively in, in the US. So I'm seeing this, uh, Bitcoin is able to fund uh, because of the economic incentive that's behind mining Bitcoin uh, and how, how many investors want to get in on this. It's able to fund the creation of new power plants that are able to use green energy resources uh, that uh, uh, operate the Bitcoin mining infrastructure that's required for the network and also local data data centers all in one single unit. And it's in the United States. Um, it, all of that was correct? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely a mouthful, right? Um, which is kind of one of the reasons why going into this, you know, wanted to make it clear we explained all the different steps and the processes as well what's happening because... Um, it's a great concept, uh, but, you know, again, the vertical integration is, is the real key element. It's, um, again, the steel mills, going back to the analogy of the steel mills being next to the coal power plants on the coal mines. The, you know, if you look at the largest growing energy demand customer in the world, or customers in the world, it's data centers. So, you know, why, you know, why wouldn't this concept that's been around for over 100 years um it, it's reusable in this use case you know it's it's bring the data center to the power generation station um fiber optics are much cheaper to lay in the ground than for example to expand power infrastructure to run a a power line you know a hundred miles um and then loss and everything else that comes with that transmission compared to running a fiber optic cable 100 miles you know what's easier um, so I think what we'll see in the traditional space is this, you know, being adopted as well. Um, data centers, you know, positioning themselves closer to generation stations to become more efficient, to have less loss. And, you know, with the U.S. fiber network, um, you know, kind of ever expanding and growing in the fiber loop that we have today, um, you know, it's, it's much easier for for basically the data to travel than it is for the power. I know that we've kind of touched on several aspects of, you know, where Bitcoin mining is going, but what do you think are the larger Im implications of having essentially a energy buyer of last resort that is operating on a global level? What do you think that's going to do for the world? Um, I mean, I, I think it's got its ups and its downs, uh, like any, any market, right? So there's negative impacts. If you look at the impact that Bitcoin has had in regards to the energy market in China, I would say for the most part, that's been a negative impact. Um, you know, mass amounts of coal facilities and whatnot. I, I don't think it's good for the environment. and I don't think it's responsible either. Um, obviously, there, there was a lot of economic incentive. But again, those economic incentives, as we look at the bear market now today and we look at the, the ban of mining in China, um, aren't going to pan out over the long term. And, and again, there's more to these facilities. Most of the facilities in China that I've been to are just an absolute disaster. Um, you know, they, they don't have the ability to have equipment there for the long haul. You're lucky if your equipment lasts a year in one of these mines in China. And, you know, there's no air filtration, there's no climate control, there's no recirculation, i.e. basically reintroducing the heat to kind of keep the temperature, um, you know, consistent versus massive variances in temperature, which creates issues on the PCB, the power supplies, and all the capacitors and components. Um, so, yeah, I mean, 
I think that having a global energy buyer is good. Um, I think you're going to see kind of the frenzy of the mining operations as a get rich quick um, scheme fall away. And you see more serious industrialized players operating in the market. And, you know, that's sort of the evolution and, and where we're seeing mining going um, in general. So, yeah, I mean, the, the average Joe Schmo isn't going to be able to put a bunch of these in his backyard shed. Like you were saying, you know, 12 cents power up in Seattle. It's not even viable right now to run an S9 on that power. Um, you're going to be subsidizing it. You might as well go out and buy the Bitcoin at that point. Brian, I'm sure you've been in the debate with somebody somewhere about how Bitcoin is going to ruin the planet. Um, what what are the first few arguments that you say to to that person, and uh, has that has that argument changed or developed at all in the 2018 uh, cycle? Look, I mean, Bitcoin mining destroying the planet, right? I mean, even if you look at the global output, is it significant? Yes. Is it you know detrimental to the environment? Maybe. Um, I mean, you look at the impact activity of that compared to the impact activities of just, you know, U.S. consumption or, you know, waste that we put out into the environment. And it's it's fractional. It's minor. Um, if you look at the oil industry in a whole environmental disaster there, um, again, it's, it's up to mining companies like ours, like Bunker Mining, to kind of lead the way into these more green approaches um, and also into a more sharing approach, right? So we want to be a part of the local community. We want to be a part of the local economy. Um, we don't want to just come into the community and, you know, steal all the power like everybody's worried about in Eastern Washington. Right, because that protects you, right? Well, it, it, it protects us. And I, you know, I think we're giving back to the community. Not only are we running a business and we're profitable and making money, where we're also incentivizing and creating jobs for the power plant and the power facilities. We're creating high-tech jobs in the Bitcoin mine or potentially, uh, potentially other traditional data centers or hosters besides cryptocurrency miners. Um, so there's you know the jobs incentives. There's also the waste disposal incentives. So taking the construction and demolition material that would otherwise go into the plant and release its carbon over time, we can capture that energy in these facilities and produce power and run the Bitcoin mine. However, when, for example, a giant winter storm rolls into the East Coast and starts knocking out the power grid or everybody starts increasing their demand, what we'll do is shut down the Bitcoin mining equipment and sell the power back into the grid to make sure that people's lights and heat are on over the winter storm. So we want to become a part of communities and incentivize that. Um, you know, I, there's economics involved for both parties. I mean, a good relationship, a good deal is where both parties get something positive or beneficial out of the deal. And so I can't understand and I, and I can't see a lot of the reasoning for people in eastern Washington. I think there's a fallacy in terms of how much power we consume versus how many jobs we create. I think there's a lot more jobs created around Bitcoin mining um, than a lot of the media outlets like to report. But, you know, again, um, you know, it wouldn't be as much as traditional manufacturer. Where in this situation with the power generation station, the amount of jobs that are created for that power are significant um, and, you know, for the mine itself. So I think it's a little bit better message and it's also creating energy and a benefit to the local. So it sounds like Bitcoin mining is going from kind of like a 
amateur operation to a hodgepodge, you know, large mining situation in China, and now it's really becoming very professional and industrialized and efficient. Can you kind of talk about, you know, what you see the future of Bitcoin mining looking like, and how do you think this industrialization is going to play out, and who's going to be involved? I, I think overall, it's actually going to be very beneficial to the network and the security of Bitcoin moving forward. Right. So um, we talk about distributing um, essentially Bitcoin mining in areas outside of China, outside of Venezuela, um, areas where, you know, we believe that the government, you know, could come in and be an influencer and try to do something negative to the network by seizing the power. I mean, the hash power, if they find it a uh, significant threat. Um, So I think for the global security of Bitcoin and for the blockchain itself, um, the large industrialization um, through power facilities and whatnot is is very good for the network um, in securing it and bringing it into more free zones. I mean, there there might be a, there's definitely opportunities elsewhere, but I think in the United States, um, the talent and the skill sets and also the incentives to build green energy um, are here, so we can capitalize on that and utilize that to grow. Let, let's get a little cosmic here. Like, what could the world look like in the future? Let's say all of this stuff kind of works out. Sure, yeah. Um, cosmic mining, huh? Where does your imagination go? <laughs> yeah, right. User imagination. Um, I, I, I think, again, it's, it's if you understand what mining does ultimately is it secures the blockchain. It secures Bitcoin as a safe um currency right i mean if you don't have mining you don't have security with bitcoin you don't really have anything um in fact i think there's also a very important economic factor that bitcoin mining in general plays into the industry right i mean the new coins that are being generated have to be sold they can't just be hoarded or held in order to influence the price they have to be sell- sold for ongoing costs of power and real tangible costs and operations so it's a it's a method of distributing the coins exactly and and that's one of the big things i always pushed when you know we talk about proof of stake and we talk about all these other technologies which are are great and some of them have a lot of merit um but the, the real big economic factor of bitcoin is the mining itself produces an economics behind it it is a lot of the economics that goes into giving bitcoin value, if you will. Um, Without that, you know, I don't think we would have seen the success that Bitcoin has had over the period of time that it has. Um, Proof of stake coins are, you know, being developed all the time now. And, you know, we haven't really seen one take off that I know of. I mean, maybe maybe you guys know of a proof of stake coin that's really taken off, uh, but one that's dedicated to it isn't there. And if you read, you know, the Dash white paper, and Dash, which is why they have sort of a proof of stake system as part of the system. And then they also have a mining component to it. And one of the reasons I talk about that is because of the economic incentive of the mining. Absolutely. So what would you say about Bitcoin miners? They have to sell in order to uh, fund their operations. Do you think they sell more than that? Or do you think they retain their Bitcoin? Or is it a case-by-case basis? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a case-by-case basis. Um, we, we obviously try to retain uh, some of the Bitcoin that we mine. Um, but, you know, we also are expanding. So a lot of that money that we've made off of mining has gone into building other facilities, 
creating new jobs and uh, also creating a lot of work for a lot of very well-paid electricians, right? So, um, yeah, I mean, there, there's it's definitely a pro to the economy um, that you're injecting this capital into. Brian, for all of those uh, trying to get into crypto, trying to get into mining, what do you think are the most valuable skill sets uh, to get into this space? Knowing how to put a PC together and knowing how a PC functions, right? Like having a basic understanding of how hardware hooks in, um, a very basic understanding of Linux and just kind of uh, knowledge of networking. Um, it actually fascinates me. I love I love working with uh, younger people and kind of being a mentor to them. And the one thing I find fascinating about, uh, I, I don't want to harp on you guys too much, but the kind of the younger generation than mine, right? I think I'm technically a millennial. I was born in the early 80s. And, um, but, you know, I grew up as technology was evolving. I didn't have a phone until I was like 16. I had a computer. I built my first computer when I was like 10, right, with my father. And so, you know, having an understanding of how electronics work, um, really what a power supply is, what an operating system is, how everything interfaces, you know, tinkering with computers and having that general knowledge, I, I think is key. Um, I think that's kind of lost to millennials now. It's like, I mean, one thing that a lot of uh, younger people can do that I can't do is like, you know, write papers and do all sorts of crazy stuff on the smartphone, right? Like for me, I got to sit down in front of my three monitors and my keyboard and mouse and work away. About the only thing I can do on my phone is read emails and send text. <laughs> <laughs> I can't work on a tablet or a smartphone. Not like some people can. Locked into your desktop, huh? Into your desktop, huh? Yeah, I'm pretty locked into my desktop. I can work on a laptop too, but again, it's just, I, I like a lot of screen space. So, <laughs> <laughs> Any last questions for him, Christian? The last thing for me is in terms of, do you see Bitcoin mining as being something that can reliably be decentralized and you you know believe is going to continue allowing the Bitcoin network to be sovereign? Or do you see it as something where, you know, you commonly see this Bitcoin mining is controlled by China? Or do you see like one entity being able to co-opt this incentive system at this point? Fortunately, no. I, I, I think we're, we're past that point finally, um, which, which is good. Um, seeing China kind of shutting down in some ways, you know, I think actually brings a lot more security to the network um, in a lot of ways. And, you know, you've got en enough large mining operations out there where it's not really centralized with one. What you really have to worry about is, you know, the pools. Um, but I think what you're going to actually see, and this is one of my theories, is that as, you know, these operations grow, like, for example, the operation we're looking at putting together um, as we span it out and, you know, we're getting up to the power consumption of, you know, a couple hundred megawatts, we're not going to be on any particular pool. We're going to just mine solo mine or mine on our own pool. Um, there's no reason to be part of Ant Pool or one of these other pools uh, once you hit a certain threshold, um, which is what we used to do prior. In fact, there's a lot of economic incentives to not be on the pool. So I think as you see larger groups, larger aggregates of mining come together, you'll actually see a fracturing of the mining pools, um, which might be better in terms of when we start talking about things like consensus and you look at F2 pool and you look at AMP pool and these large players that are out there that have huge influence on the you know basically blockchain development side 
um, having these more fractured, you know, maybe 3% of the network, 5% of the network split up into smaller um, groups is could very well be beneficial and encourage more conversations and, and bring the hands of the control outside of those major pool operators. Um, so I think that's a very positive uh, message uh, for security um, because that's definitely our plan. You know, I don't really want to have to be a part of a particular pool as soon as it's economically viable for us not to be. So it, it, is what you're saying that uh, the time of where Bitcoin mining pools have is now kind of in our past, perhaps, and like the the fact that two or maybe three pools can control fifty one percent of the hash rate is kind of, this is this is maybe the most centralized Bitcoin mining has ever been. And even though that Bitcoin mining is kind of converging into these large scale uh, operations, it's still becoming more decentralized than it was. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, ab- absolutely. Um, you know, right now the unless you have probably I think calculation wise about two percent of the network one percent of the network um you know privately with your own hash rate it's really not economically viable or puts you at a risk situation um for mining by yourself i mean if you go for a long period of time without finding a block it affects the revenue of your facility and essentially your luck if you will is what they call it in the pools is a lot more volatile so you know, you really want to be, that's, that's the incentive for miners today to be on the pool. But once you start to have a larger, you know, subset of the network, it's no longer necessary to be on a pool. In fact, it's more economically benefit um, to you to be able to grab all those transaction fees and everything else that come along with mining that the pools keep to run their own operations. Um, you know, the, the cost of running a pool when you're solo mining is not as significant as a lot of people think, especially when you're doing it, you know, just through some proxy nodes and things on AWS and, you know, distribute it. Um, it's, it's not a super difficult or expensive thing to do as a lot of people um, would have you believe. Now, obviously, when you're counting on tens of thousands of connections from a lot of at-home miners and whatnot, you know, that those costs go up significantly. Um, but again, I think the consolidations are going to continue to push into fewer, larger facilities. Um, but even so, with what we're doing, um, you know, we're still going to have multiple facilities. And I'm sure other competitors are going to be coming in and doing some things similar. Um, I think one thing that's interesting, though, uh, that I've seen a lot of players and competitors doing um, that's different than what Bunker's doing is they're trying to harvest you know, wind resources, solar resources, things of that nature. And the problem with renewables is the inconsistency of power delivery. And unless you have large battery backups or whatnot, you're only mining for you know, 60, 70% of the time when the sun's out. And then you have to pay higher prices for the grid prices at night. Um, that's not really an incentive or a good thing for the local communities around you. Whereas you know, a lot of the green energy projects we're working on with C&D and biomass, you know, these are large boilers. These plants are running 24-7. And you don't have that sort of inconsistent up and down um, as a lot of the renewable resources have. So, you know, I think that's kind of one of the edges that we have that we've seen over similar companies um, to Bunker trying to do what we're trying to do. 
So I know we're kind of going a little long on time here, but I do have a couple more questions for you, Brian. This is super fascinating discussion. My first question is 2020 halving is coming up. I know you've been through a couple halvings to this point. What like, what do the halvings mean for you as a miner and how do you prepare for them? Well, to be honest with you, how we prepare for them is we try to uh, spend as little of the Bitcoin as we've mined as possible. Um, obviously, when the halving occurs, the influx in the supply and the economics, you know, the amount of Bitcoin uh, coming into these changes or whatnot for the miners that they're selling decreases, which drives the price up. Um, so one of the biggest things is to, you know, have a cash reservoir going in ahead of time before the halving and try to hold on to almost all the Bitcoin for even a couple months beyond the halving. Um, it's, you know, that's been the best strategy going forward uh, through every halving. Um, you know, there's there's a downward pressure where everybody's kind of freaking out for the first month or so for the price to start reflecting the decrease in the amount of new coin coming into the market. Um, but we'll, we'll see. I mean, you know, we're up to the point where we've mined, you know, 16 million, 17 million Bitcoin. So, um, you know, a good chunk of the Bitcoin's already been mined. So we'll see what that uh, impact, if you will, of new coin is going to have because each having that impact is less um yeah so we'll see i think it changes every having is the answer fortunately but you know again upward price pressure is put with the having so generally generally good for us in the long run are you trying to like hold off for six months are you trying to hold off for 12 months you know like how far in advance can you even plan for this kind of an event um, for the having, I mean, three, six months. I mean, obviously we know when it's going to be um, within a few days, even now. So um, I'm, you know, again, it's our general strategy internally in the company is to hold on to, you know, let's say 25% or so of all the Bitcoins we've mined, um, you know, about 50% or 25% get sold off for operations and, and expansion and growth the other 50 for profit revenue and the investors and then another 25 percent for long-term savings um that's been the general rule of thumb obviously those you know numbers could change depending upon you know our cost of operation as we grow and expand and, and bring on more resources and more generating stations um you know we might decide to hold on to more bitcoin i mean again upward pressure um the less bitcoin we sell you know the Basically, the more scarcity we increase, scarcity for Bitcoin on the uh, on the markets. Um, but you know, we still have to sell due to operational costs. Again, it's the free market economics coming into play. So, last last question for me, and then and then I'll shut up. I know again we're we're going a little long here, but have you heard of the Better Hash protocol? And uh, if so, what's your thoughts? If not, I'll explain it to you, and would like to get your thoughts after that. Oh, go, go ahead and explain it. I'm not sure. Yeah, so Bet, uh, Matt Carello, one of the core developers for Bitcoin, is developing infrastructure um, and a protocol for mines where, you know, let's say I am I have a couple ASICs in my garage. Normally, I point them at slush pool, um, but when I'm doing that, I'm still trusting the mine operator to essentially pick uh, the transactions that enter the block, right? So I'm, I'm trusting their full node. Um, with better hash, I could point my hash power there um, and pool my hash power um, with the you know a, a a mining pool. 
but I can use my own node to select uh, transactions. So it's kind of attempting to get the best of both worlds where you're pulling your hash, but your miner is operating under its own node independently. And it's a, a, an attempt to further decentralize and eliminate um, any of the centralization that comes from pulling hash power together. Yeah, no, I think that's a great way. Um, one of the things that's always been an issue is, you know, who controls all the Bitcoin nodes and whatnot and the, you know, the economic consensus for controlling the nodes. And I think that solves a lot of the issues um, that people and a lot of the issues and concerns and the expense of the nodes that the miners can run them independently. Um, I mean, for the purposes of, you know, kind of what we do internally, we we basically have software that manages that aspect. So we have a contractual system and a group that we work with that allows us to split off a hash rate of an individual miner and allows the end user to essentially direct that hash rate to their own pool um, as part of a, essentially it's a VM model, if you will, for Bitcoin mining. But, you know, again, if better hash comes along, then yeah, that's another great way of uh, handling it. Although, Again, I don't really see a lot of home users involved in this. Um, and if there are users, you know, those users are going to basically be buying, um, you know, hash rate contracts through, you know, bunker mining or other um, other mega providers, industrialized mining providers, um, just due to the fact that the economics of it just aren't practical to run at their own homes and locations. So... I'll have, to, I'll have to read more into it. Um, I don't think it's going to be a huge influencer, but, you know, again, if you can address the nodal issues, I think that would be a uh, positive outcome. Brian, really appreciate you coming on and telling us about uh, your history with uh, mining Bitcoin and your efforts with uh, bunker bunker mining. Uh, if, one, if people want to find more about bunker mining, where can they go? Um, we've got a website uh, coming live here in the next couple of days, um, bunkermining.bunkercapital.com. Um, there'll be a link on, I believe, on Bunker Capital that'll get you there. Um, you can also check out the uh, ICO projects and uh, you know what, what we do at Bunker Capital as well. Awesome, and we will link to that in the show notes. Brian, do you have any? Do you have any asks for the audience? Ask for the audience. Do you have a Twitter? I'm not on Twitter. I, I, I'm working on expanding my social media uh, contacts. I, I kept off uh, kind of a privacy guru, so I kept off LinkedIn Fair for enough. a long time until recently, where my position uh, kind of mandates more public uh, public outcry. But I definitely think uh, you know we'll set up a Twitter for bunker bunker mining, and you guys will be able to reach me out there, um, ask questions about the project, and. Again, you know, one of the big things that we do uh, compared to a lot of mining firms is transparency and PR. Um, you know, a lot of a lot of miners are very private, you know, trying to keep their location secret. Like you can't find it, you know, if you drive by the location very easily. Um, <laughs> most miners are very private and, you know, location security oriented. We're more trying to be transparent and, you know, have a positive uh, PR message. Is there a way that if people wanted to get involved with bunker mining, they could, you know, whether that's, hey, uh, a technical guy who wants to work for you guys or whether that's someone who wants to invest money, how can people get involved? Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, we're, like I said, we're going to be putting out a lot of publications and, um, you know, articles and things. So, you know, basically once the bunker mining web website is live here, um, you know, please, please go there and take a look for updates. Um, you can take a look and see where our mining communities are. We'll have contacts. 
Um, if you guys are interested, investor outreach, um, you know, all, all sorts of different uh, cool things. So feel free to uh, hit us up online. It's been an awesome time working with Brian. I've learned a ton from him in this space, and it was really an exciting opportunity to get him onto the podcast in order to share some of the things that he shared with me. Um, if you're interested in the project, you can go to mining.bunkercapital.com and check out more of the details. The, the website isn't live as of today, but it should be live in the coming weeks, uh, and it will be able to explain a little bit more detail about the actual project. Yeah, and like we said, we're definitely having Brian in for another episode. Definitely going to go for more of a debate style. So it's going to be really fun having Brian as a resource and friend to the show. Thank you, uh, Brian and Bunker Capital, Bunker Mining, for you know coming on and, and supporting us as well. Yeah, in, in line with the topics of proof of work, I think our next episode is going to be a debate about proof of work versus proof of stake and uh, just using all the information that's come out of the Ethereum ecosystem recently because a lot has changed uh, and then to to run that head-to-head with the tried and true methods of proof, proof of work, which are uh, basically the fundamental uh, supporting mechanism for all of crypto at the moment. So if you're interested in that topic, stay tuned for POV Crypto episode 16 proof of work versus proof of stake. I know you guys like a debate, so we got a good one coming up for you and many more to come. So stay tuned. Again, check out the show at POV Crypto Pod. Rate the show. I think we have like 18 reviews right now. I said this last week. We need to get to 30 to get to the page one on iTunes. So I'm going to call out the uh, the listeners every time we're not at 30. <laughs> so help us out. The sooner we get to 30, the less you'll, uh, you'll hear it from me and Christian. Yeah. Hey, you can find me on Twitter at CK underscore snarks. David? Tr- uh, at Trustless State, both on Medium and on Twitter. Check out my content there. Got some cool articles coming down the pipeline. My first article about Bitcoin is coming up. Stay tuned. Will you?